Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening. Um, welcome to the, today's online public event hosted by the LSE's International Inequalities Institute. My name is Neil Lee. I'm a professor of economic geography and I am very pleased to be the convener of the LSE's um, Cities, Jobs and Economic Change research theme in the International Inequalities Institute. Now, I'm, extre- I'm delighted this, this evening to be chairing today's event, Power, Privilege, Parties, The Shaping of Modern Britain, which discusses Simon Cooper's new book, Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tories Took Over the UK. Now, when I first suggested this event, um, the LSE immediately said we cannot do an event which is talking too much about Oxford, but actually, I think this is a wonderful book, and I think it's wonderful because, like much of Simon's work, it's ostensibly about one thing, but it also tells us something bigger about the world, about the, about the UK, about power, education and its value, and about sort of elites in British society. So I think it's a great piece of work to be discussing. So Simon is an author and Financial Times journalist. Um, he's born in Uganda and raised around the world. He's written for The Observer, The Times and The Guardian. His other books include... The Happy Traitor, and for me, my favourite is Stockonomics, which is one of those books which me and my sort of football-obsessed um, economist friends all read or uh, read avidly at the time and continue to, to recite back to each other while we're watching matches. Simon's poorly described on Wikipedia as a football writer, but actually a lot of his work tackles some of the big themes of modern, of modern life, and particularly, you know, he's been fantastic at covering the sort of social change of the last decade or so. And one final thing, which I didn't know until today, Simon's father is an LSE professor, I think. So we have our own form of sort of nepotism here. Um, sorry, Simon. Sorry, he was briefly a visiting professor at the LSE, yes. It's our own, our own form of, um, of, of nepotism, I guess, in a way. Um, but we're not, too, we're not allowed to be nasty about Oxford, except for one of our speakers, Jane Gingrich, professor in comparative political economy at the University of Oxford. Jane's does wonderful work on comparative political economy, comparative social policy. Um, she's written some fantastic work on education, and she's currently the principal investigator of a, an ERC-funded project, School Poll, which studies variation and effects of educational regimes across countries. So we've got Jane speaking, and then we also have our own Michael Savage, Professor Mike Savage, who's Martin White Professor of Sociology at LSE. He co-founded the LSE's International Inequalities Institute, and he runs the Wealth, Elites, and Tax Justice Research theme. So we, the event's going to run for about an hour and 30 minutes, from 6.30 until 8 p.m. Our speakers are going to present for one hour, and as usual, there'll be a chance for our audience to pose questions um, in the final 30 minutes of the event. Please do so using the box at the, at the sort of base of the screen. Um, you can ask the questions all the way through, I think. Please state your name and affiliation where possible. One thing to note is that we have a live captioner and BSL interpreters at today's event. To activate the captions, please click the CC button at the bottom of your screens. You can also access larger captions by using the link that has been posted into the chat box. If you wish to make use of the BSL interpreting, please pin the two interpreters to your screen. To do this, you hover over each of their videos, click the three dots and select pin. So that's how you do it. Um, please do keep those questions coming. It's a fascinating book and a controversial one, and I'm really, really excited about today's event. So, Simon, thank you very much for coming to the LSE, albeit virtually, 
and I'm very much looking forward to your presentation. Thank you very much, Neil. I'm now going to try the acrobatic feat of sharing my screen. Let's hope this works. Here we go. I think now you can see my book title, my book cover on the screen, which is much better than seeing me spread all over your screen. So thank you everyone for being here. And it really does feel like a homecoming, albeit that I'm Just coming to you from- Simon, sorry, could you put it onto full screen? Is that possible? Yes, sorry. sorry. Uh, I knew I would do something wrong. Um, play from start. There we go. That's better, isn't it? That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. As well as my dad having briefly sourced at the LSC, my late beloved mother was a uh, colonial girl who came here 60 years ago and did her MA at the LSE. So it really is homecoming. So Chums is a book about <coughs> what I call the traditional British ruling caste, which is the Oxford-educated Tory public school boys who led the push for Brexit and are now the UK's dominant political grouping. And I began thinking about this book in the early morning of June 24th, 2016. Like so many people, I sat up all night watching television aghast. And as I watched the leading Leavers and Remainers troop across my TV screen, I realized all of them, except Farage, were Oxford types, more or less of my 80s generation. And that's really quite odd because only about 3,000 undergraduates a year go to Oxford. It's about half a percent of each British age cohort. And yet the UK is a political oxocracy. Now, of course, the caste I'm talking about was formed partly at public school. Absolutely, I acknowledge that. But Oxford does matter too as an independent variable. And you see that in the current furore among the private school caste about their weakening grip on Oxford entry, Oxbridge entry. And lots of those parents are now thinking, well, why am I paying 20 grand a year in school fees for my child if it's not buying them a place at Oxbridge? So in short, Eton without Oxbridge is worth a lot less than Eton plus Oxbridge. And Oxford in particular, is possibly the key step on the route to British political power. In fact, you can tell the story of modern British politics almost without reference to any other university. And I argue that if Johnson, Michael Gove, Dan Hanan, Dominic Cummings and Rees Mogg had got rejection letters from Oxford age 17, they probably wouldn't have ascended to their later positions of power. And so Britain would be a different country today. You know that oxocracy is not new. 11 of the 15 post-war prime ministers went to Oxford. So how has Oxford captured the British political machine? With what consequences? And what could we do about it? Well, why does Oxford produce all these prime ministers? Mostly it's because of the prestige of the Oxford Union Debating Society. And in modern times also the PPE degree, politics, philosophy, economics, not sort of Cambridge, both of which tend to attract ambitious 17-year-old politicos to Oxford. Past presidents of the Oxford Union include Johnson, Ted Heath, Michael Foote, Michael Gove, uh, Theresa May and Harold Macmillan were both union officers, not presidents. Margaret Thatcher couldn't join because women were barred in her day, but she was president of Oxford University's Conservative Association. Now, every Oxford political cohort is different. And in the book, I distinguish roughly three political generations. And the first is high-born Oxford men whose formative experience was fighting in a world war. Harold Macmillan, for instance, June 1914, when he's 20, his CV looks a lot like 
the CV of the future 20-year-old Boris Johnson. Eton, you know, pretty upper-class background, classics of Balliol College. Macmillan's just been elected librarian of the Oxford Union by two votes. He's a callow youth without a mission, raised in isolation from other Britons. But then in summer 1914, his CV and Johnson's diverge. Macmillan goes to World War I, is wounded three times. And even so, in 1916, he refuses his mother's suggestion that he apply for a safe staff job. Seven Oxford Union presidents died in World War I, including three of the four who were in post between summer 1912 and summer 1913. So this is a class sacrifice by the ruling caste. Orwell wrote, Bertie Worcester, if he ever existed, was killed round about 1915. Macmillan said in old age that upper-class officers such as himself, leading working-class troops, I quote, learned for the first time how to feel at home with a whole class with whom we could not have contact, come into contact in any other way. So in the British tradition, a junior officer was responsible for his men's lives. So when these working-class privates were killed, it was he who had to write letters to their mothers. And so it was a paternalistic but a deeply responsible relationship. From 1940 through 1963, Britain is ruled throughout by prime ministers who had volunteered for the front in World War I, starting with Churchill, sacked from government after the disaster of the Gallipoli landings, becomes a commander of a battalion in the Royal Scots Fusiliers, 1916, he's 41 years old, goes off to Belgium where he's nearly killed. Other Oxford, well, Oxford men, Churchill, obviously did not go to any university. Clement Attlee fought at Gallipoli, wounded in Mesopotamia, later again in France. Anthony Eden won a military cross for carrying back a wounded sergeant from no man's land under German fire. And two of Eden's three brothers were killed in the war. Three more Oxford Union presidents fell in World War II, and another, Ted Heath, won an MBA aged 29 for his role in the Normandy landings. So for over 30 years, even very posh war veterans, Oxford men, had this formative experience of cross-class solidarity. And I think the closest Britain ever got to one nation was quite possibly in the trenches, even if the officers slept on beds and men on the ground, the men on the ground. And I think they really did feel they were all in it together. And it's no coincidence that the British era of war veteran prime ministers is also the era of Britain as a social democracy approximately 1945 through 1979. And both eras end simultaneously with Jim Callaghan's defeat by Thatcher. By then, 1979, we're already into the second post-war cohort of Oxford leaders, the commoners, if you like, Harold Wilson, Heath, Thatcher, because from 1965 through 2005, the Labour Party mostly, and the Tory party entirely, is led by people <coughs> who went to state school at the time it was felt that Britons would not vote for TOFs anymore. And then we get the third cohort, today's cohort, the people who've been running the country since 2010, the Cameron Johnson Gove generation. It's born in untroubled times. They're the most privileged members of the luckiest generation of a country that for over 300 years has avoided revolution, dictatorship, famine, civil war, invasion, or economic collapse. And yet these men feel a certain envy for their ancestors who had ruled Britain 
in more exciting times. <coughs> Excuse me. If you were born into the ruling class in the 60s or 70s, modernity had to feel like decline. Your fathers and grandfathers had run the world, and here you were growing up in a struggling mid-sized outpost of the European economic community. And Britain's tame, vegetarian, low-stakes, Brussels-based, post-imperial incarnation had nothing more glorious to offer these men than the Falklands War. And so some Tories of the Johnson generation actively craved tragedy. They longed for their own heroic project, but it took them a few decades to think of one. So let's go back to Oxford in the 80s. I suspect some of you here were there. I arrived aged 18 in 1988. Cameron and Gove had graduated that summer. Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, who after doing an undergraduate degree at Leeds, did a Bachelor of Civil, War, Civil Law, not Civil War at Oxford, they both left simultaneously in 1987. Johnson had been president of the union. As you'll know, this is him, I think, with Melina Mercuri while also building his future networks in the Bullingdon Club. I think this is a photo that all of you will know. It's since been, uh, I think the copyright has been removed by the photographers. I joined the university newspaper, Charwell, where we were always making fun of an absurd 18-year-old Etonian who dressed like a Victorian vicar. I wonder how many of you can recognize Jacob Rees-Mogg. Here he is aged 18, how he has changed. And we mocked Dan Hanan, the future theorist of Brexit. Dominic Cummings arrived a year or two after me, and he mostly sailed beneath the radar. So how did Oxford shape these men? Well, Oxford exacerbates an ancient tendency in British political culture, which is the overemphasis on rhetoric, the importance of speaking well. And that particularly applies at Oxford to the art subjects, but especially in the 80s, most Oxford undergraduates did art subjects. The tutorial system in particular overvalues verbal skills. In the 80s, when Oxford was a much less professional university than today, as you're gonna hear from Professor Gingrich, a tutorial would often go like this. Aged 18, you'd read out your pitiful but elegant essay, which you might've finished at 5 a.m. Your tutor would point out the gaps in your knowledge, and for an hour, you would try and talk your way around those ga gaps. Bluffing your way through tutorials was considered an art, Charwell, the newspaper, once praised Simon Stevens, another Oxford Union president, and until last year, head of the NHS. They praised him as Oxford's most talented off-the-cuff tutorial faker. Now, of course, most tutors could see through tutorial fakers. They weren't idiots, but often they couldn't be bothered to stop them. If a tutor wanted to do no work and bluff his way through his degree, many 80s tutors felt that was his choice. I say his because men outnumbered women in 1980s Oxford by nearly two to one. Essays were not expected to feature footnotes or original research. You just had to read bits of a few books, or if you were very pressed, one book, and lay out a bold, ideally counterintuitive argument showing that the conventional wisdom about the subject was all wrong. And the provocative essay style tended to come more naturally to men than to women. And elegant writers who could produce in a hurry and argue cases they didn't necessarily believe tended to get better degrees or often got better degrees than serious scholars who'd read all the texts and cared about nuanced complexity. And the essay style I learned at Oxford has turned out to be ideal preparation for newspaper columnism. And when I read The Economist, I see I'm not the only one. 
Among the small Tory political caste, then the union is also extremely important, and it worsens this emphasis on rhetoric. Because what does the union president do? They didn't make policy that affected students' lives. That was done by the student union and by the college's junior common rooms, which handled issues like rents or discrimination. And those roles tended to attract budding labourites like the Miliband brothers, Yvette Cooper, or Ed Balls. Now, Labour has an Oxford tradition, but a very different one. Historically, Labour people are not steeped in the union like the Conservatives are. Attlee, Wilson and Blair never bothered with the union while at Oxford. Blair honed his communication skills elsewhere, in theatre and playing in a rock band. And by the 80s, you know, the era of this book, Oxford's actually, Labour's actually boycotting the union. So the union becomes a training ground largely for Tories like Johnson, Gove and Rees-Mogg. So to understand the leading Conservatives today, you need to study the 1980s Oxford Union. All it does is stage debates and hold elections, so it naturally encourages this focus on rhetoric. Like tutorials and like Oxford's social language of ironic banter, the union perfected the articulacy that enabled future politicians, pundits and barristers to argue any case whether they believed it or not. You won union debates, not by boring the audience with detail, but with carefully timed jibes, calculated lowerings of um, voice and ad hominem, or to have ad hominem stabs, sorry. Think of uh, Johnson in the Commons yesterday uh, making his joke about Sir Beer Cormer about Keir Starmer. Change the subject always. The same went for winning union elections, which were held every term, invaluable practice for future politicos. So by the time Union Hacks finished university age 21, they were almost ready for the commons. There's one other very important thing with hindsight going on in Oxford in the late 80s, and that's the birth of a Eurosceptic movement. September 1988, which is two or three weeks before Rees-Mogg and I start university, Thatcher, who had always been a good European till then, she'd been building the single market with the European Commissioner Jacques Delors, suddenly she realizes, hey, the single market is going to be accompanied by closer political integration. She doesn't like that. So she gives the Bruce speech warning about a European superstate exercising a new dominance from Brussels. And this Eurosceptic speech is a turning point and it spooks the Oxford Tories of the day because ruling Britain is what they're going to do when they grow up. They've known that since they were eight. They're headed to Westminster like you know, the Etonians and Oxford men who ruled Britain forever. And they don't want outsiders in Brussels muscling in. And so Tory Euroscepticism begins in part as a jobs protection scheme, like taxi drivers fighting back against Uber. One early Oxford convert to Euroscepticism was Patrick Robertson, a history undergraduate. He sets up a think tank called the Bruise Group, age 20, and he then abandons his degree to, um, you know, to help grow the Bruise Group, which becomes the first organized British opposition to the EEC, arguably. And within months, the group has attracted more than 100 backbench MPs. And when Thatcher is ousted as PM, pretty much the first thing she does is become its honorary president. Someone who would become even more significant than Robertson is a history student called Daniel Hanan. When John Major approved the outlines of the Maastricht Treaty, the federalizing Maastricht Treaty in late 1990, 
Hanan, who's a first year, 18 student, 18 years old at Oxford, he's outraged. And he thinks Britain is giving up its sovereignty. And so that December 1990, he and a couple of friends, one of them the future UKIP MP, Mark Reckless, found the Oxford campaign for an independent Britain in a coffee shop on the Oxford High Street. And it soon becomes the university's biggest political society after the union, the CIB as it's called. And with hindsight, the CIB looks like the genesis of the Brexit campaign. And Hanan in 1990 is Karl Marx in 1848, the, the theorist who sketches the paradise to come. And while at Oxford, Hanan was always inviting Eurosceptic MPs up from London to speak. And when he graduates in 1993, he helped set up the European Research Group at Westminster, which we have all read a lot about these last five years, and he becomes its first employee. So while everyone else is watching the news cycle, Hanan then spends the next 25 years keeping his eyes on a bigger prize. So the Oxford Tories come down to London, and what can they do? Rhetoric. So where do they go? Into journalism, my profession. Johnson was sacked from the Times for making up quotes, but got hired by The Telegraph by editor Max Hastings, whom he'd met when Hastings spoke at the Union during Johnson's presidency. Gove and later Hanan became journalists too. George Osborne tried, but was rejected both by The Times and The Economist. David Cameron also had an interview at The Economist. Cameron did a stint at the Conservative Research Department, but then he too goes into the rhetorical sector, running public relations at the media company Carlton. But from the start of their careers, their target is the senior branch of the rhetorical sector, Parliament, the ancestral home of the boarding school caste. Cameron, Gove and Johnson get there in the early 2000s. But at this point, Oxford Tories are still looking around for their political cause of their generation. They need a cause. They've got nothing like empire or world war or even Thatcherism. And one of their problems is that Thatcher, their heroine, has already actually fulfilled most of their political desires. She's a very rare politician who completes her project. And by the time she goes, she's privatized and cut taxes so far that you can't really take that project any further if Britain is going to remain a recognizable Western country. So the Johnson generation of Tories starts off without an obvious mission. But nobody cares about them anyway during the Blair years, because Labour seems to have usurped the, rule, the role of permanent ruling party. And Oxford Tories in this time are competing against Britain's longest period of economic growth in 200 years. Tories finally get back into government in 2010, and they get to know Brussels. Because if you're a British minister, you're always on the Eurostar to Brussels. You go to the ghastly uh, modernist European quarter, and you sit in endless meetings, listening to the Latvian environment minister bang on about plastic bag use. And so that's a big come down. If you're one of these Tories, it's very depressing. You're living the UK's post-war descent from very well alone of 1940 to qualified majority voting. Brussels is all about laborious consensus building, not elegant adversarial jousting. It's full of technocrats who speak this ugly globish. And for Oxford Tories, it's the opposite of the witty ancient gentleman's club of Westminster. And importantly, Brussels sometimes tries to tell Britain what to do. And that offends the sense of personal entitlement that men of this caste grow up with. Nobody tells boarding school and Oxford men what to do. 
rules were for other people, and we've seen that with Parsigate this week again. In their private lives, in their financial dealings, and at Westminster, these men expect maximum freedom. Cameron calls the Brexit referendum, and here it is, Brexit, the grand cause that Johnson and Gove had lacked all their political careers. It would give them a chance to live in interesting times, as their ancestors had. It would raise the tediously low stakes of British politics. The Oxford Tories can reclaim parliamentary sovereignty from the Brussels intruders. And beautifully, Hanan had spent a quarter century sketching out how exactly Brexit would work, what trade arrangements would be, and so on. So he was able to give Oxford tutorial level plausible sounding answers to all the boring technocratic questions that uh, whiners would sometimes ask. In private, many senior Brexiteers understood that Brexit might not work out, but who cares? Britain had no natural predators and would survive even a blunder and their caste certainly would. Even more personally, the leading British leavers in early 2016 were not having the careers they expected. In part, they treated the referendum as a kind of Oxford Union presidential campaign for grown-ups. Ox uh, Brexit is often called an anti-elitist revolt. More precisely, it was an anti-elitist revolt led by an elite, a coup by one set of public schoolboys, Oxford public schoolboys, against another, backed by an Australian Oxford public schoolboy media magnet. And in fact, this is important. Many vote leave, many voters were willing to entrust vote leave with the national future precisely because vote leave was led by a reassuringly traditional elite. Johnson and Gove had these reassuring Oxford credentials that gave Brexit more credibility. Farage could never have done it on his own. People wouldn't have voted for it, not enough. But Johnson's CV, confidence and classical tags suggested that he was more than just a funny man, he was a man of weight. In British terms, this Etonian and Oxford figure seemed born to rule. And if this man was telling people that, quote, the cost of getting out would be virtually nil, or if Gove said, the day after we vote to leave, we hold all the cards, then surely Brexit couldn't just be a hazardous leap into the unknown. So the Oxford Tories strike a shake, the Brexiteers strike a shaky cross-class alliance with Farage. They never like him, but he recruits support beyond the Tory base. But vote leave's problem is that ordinary voters were never very interested in parliamentary sovereignty. Perhaps people didn't care very much whether they were ruled by an out-of-touch elite in Brussels or ditto in Westminster. So Cummings focused the Leave campaign on two issues that most Britons did care about at the time, immigration, of course now Ghana's a political issue, and the NHS. And with his Oxford-honed rhetoric, he found the perfect three-word slogan. Johnson in particular fought the referendum like a union debate with funny, almost substance-free hot air. In England, humor is used to cut off conversations before they can get boring, emotional, or technical. Hence his famous line on leaving the EU while keeping all the benefits of the single market, my policy on cake is pro-having it and pro-eating it. In 2019, he won a Tory leadership election in which six of the last seven candidates were high-caste white men who'd studied art subjects, PPE, or law at Oxford in the late 80s or early 90s. But almost immediately, his cabinet was hit by a problem for which Oxford had not prepared them. Suddenly, Oxford Tories had to confront questions of biology, statistics, and exponential growth. 
Britain does have great scientists, engineers, and plants, but they're stuck in the engine room while the rhetoricians drive the train. Modern Oxford specializes in producing politicians, civil servants, lawyers, accountants, and pundits. I'm one of them. And these people, including me, typically dropped science and maths age 16 and acquired only a smattering of economics. Once Johnson started paying attention to the virus, his instinct was to avoid lockdown. And that's what the Tory writes, Oxford, Oxford right-wing journalists like James Dellingpole, Toby Young, Julia Hartley Brewer were telling him what he undoubtedly would have been saying in the Telegraph if he hadn't been PM. They said, don't lock down because this caste has grown up expecting maximum personal freedom. The World Health Organization declared a global pandemic March 11, 2020. Johnson kept the UK open until March 23rd. And a report by two House of Commons all-party committees last October called the government's initial strategy of pursuing herd immunity and the consequent late lockdown, one of the most important public health failures the UK has ever experienced. Now, this wasn't a one-off disaster. It was the British state's fourth major policy blunder this century after the Iraq war, the financial crisis, and Brexit. And like the previous disasters, it had its roots partly in the privileging of rhetoric over facts and expertise. In 2002-03, it was Blair's articulacy that sold the Iraq war in Britain. When he hinted that Saddam Hussein's imaginary WMD could hit the UK in 45 minutes, the generally unscientific ruling class mostly believed him. Then the financial crisis hit Britain especially hard, largely because London's financial sector was so big. For decades, the semi-numerate political elite had treated the city as a magic money tree, whose demands always had to be granted because Lord knows how the thing actually works. But in 28, 2008, the tree fell over and hit the country. And then we had Brexit and the COVID-19 slaughter. Germany, to cite one possible benchmark, either avoided or mitigated at least three out of the four disasters. We now know that while ordinary Britons were locked up at home, the rule makers went on a Bullingdon-esque tear of rule breaking. You might think it's insane for Johnson to risk his premiership over some of his booze-ups, but again, and I think this is a key to understanding Johnson, his caste expects maximum personal freedom. So what is to be done? Oxford has become a much more professional university than it was in the 80s. Most tutors don't tolerate articulate bluffers anymore. Students work much harder than they did in my day. Uh, many final exams have been reformed away from the old three essays in three hours format that favored the, quote, natural essayists. And just in the last three or five years, there's even been some reform of admissions. Several triggers have belatedly embarrassed Oxbridge into doing something about Brexit, about privilege. There was the anti-elitist strain of the Brexit uprising, and then Me Too, Black Lives Matter, and the improvement of British state schools. And now Oxbridge colleges aim for contextual admissions, taking account of the disadvantage that candidates might have surmounted to reach their academic level. So there has been a big advance. In 2000, private schools still supplied about half of Oxford's domestic intake, Last year, that was down to 32%, which I think is the lowest figure on record. So 68% state schools. And Johnson's old college, Balliol, had only one Etonian among its 137 freshers. 
But of course, the main beneficiaries of Oxford's new entry system are not the British working classes, not the mass of the population in general, I'm not saying the mass is working class. The beneficiaries are largely upper middle class people who went to state school. And even now, much at Oxford remains as it was in the 80s. The outsized role of rhetoric, the tutorial system, the union survive, remain important. And despite the recent advances, I don't trust Oxford to reform itself. For centuries, its role in the British system has been to funnel privately educated boys from school to power. But it could be different. In January, the elite French postgraduate training school, the École Nationale d'Administration, was formally abolished. ENA, educated four of the last six presidents, including Macron, is not exactly dead. It's now become an institute for public service that aims to be more meritocratic and efficient. The hope is that it will no longer be just a place where the French elite reproduces itself. Well, Britain could do something like that with Oxbridge. My suggestion would be to keep what's best about these universities, but stop them teaching undergraduates because that would remove Oxbridge's biggest distortion of British power structures. And I also feel that the undoubted excellence of much of Oxbridge is wasted often on 18-year-olds, typically from the most privileged British backgrounds who have other things on their mind than study, as I did when I was 18. Oxford and Cambridge themselves might benefit from the change. Uh, they currently lose money, I'm told, on every British undergraduate they teach. The tuition fee doesn't nearly cover costs. If they ditch undergraduates, they could focus entirely on research, teaching grad students, spawning tech companies, and making ever more money from corporate conferences and executive education. But above all, most importantly, we could reform Oxbridge so that it educates more excluded Britons. How about you're 37 years old, you didn't go to university the first time around because of where you come from or because your life wasn't in that place at the time, but you are very bright and passionate about learning something. Oxbridge will find you and bring you in, whether it's for a summer or three years. Let's retrain gifted but underqualified adults. Let's expand these summer schools for promising disadvantaged teenagers. Oxbridge for all could raise a lot of people's sights. So absolutely, let's keep the excellence that there is in Oxbridge, but let's spread it much more widely. You might argue that a new set of elite universities, perhaps your university and UCL, would simply replace Oxbridge. Well, it hasn't happened in countries like Germany, Canada, Sweden, or Australia, where they've never really believed in elite universities. Other British universities will always lack Oxbridge's inherited prestige and wealth. So I don't think it's inevitable we will go back to a system where uh, the universe, lesser you get after the admissions, lesser you get from the university that drops onto your parents' doormat when you're 18 years old can give you access for the rest of your life to positions of power or exclude you permanently from it. 99% of the British population don't even get the rejection letter. It's possible that without Oxbridge, more public schools might leave the public school boys might leave the country and do their undergraduate degrees at fancy US colleges, but the long-term outcome might be the export of a chunk of the hereditary ruling caste. Etonians might try to capture Oxbridge's graduate schools but at least admission there would be from age 21, so less a simple reflection of parental social class, and education would be more specialist than at undergraduate. Doing a PhD in molecular biology or pre-colonial Indian history might not take you to Downing Street. 
Alternatively, we could just preserve Oxford unchanged and accept the self-perpetuation of an inherited elite as the intended outcome of British life. But I suspect some of you will have your own ideas for reform. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be very interested to hear what Jane and Mike have to say and interested in everybody else's thoughts too. Thank you, Neil. Simon, thank you so much for a wonderful summary of a very interesting book. I think we're going next to Mike, who I can't see, but I'm assuming he's going to put his um, yeah, put his microphone on. Um, oh. Take it away. Thank you. Yes, I'm going to share my screen, hopefully, if I can. Um, okay, can everybody see that? So, um, well, thank you. It's a, it's a wonderful book. And um, two things I, I, I would want to pull out, which really, I think, make the book not just a good read, it's definitely a good read, but it, it, it is just really, I think, important for academics and for social scientists to think about. Uh, one of them is there is still a view out there that Brexit somehow is populist revolt of the masses against the political classes. Um, and what Simon shows very, very clearly is actually the Brexit project was an elite project. It was, to be sure, in the referendum, many people on the receiving end of economic change over recent years voted for it, but the actual project was put together by a particular cabal of elite people. I think that's really important to counter certain narratives about you know, um, how Brexit came about because of uh, people finally you know, taking back control to use that Dominic Cummings expression. And the second point I'd really say, which I really enjoyed about the book, is just I understand Boris Johnson now in a way I didn't before. Uh, you know, it's so easy to see him as an aberration. I mean, someone who just managed to get away with it. Someone who we think is completely confused by how he's managed to be so successful for so long. And even today, with all the revelations of recent months, he's still Prime Minister. I think what Simon shows really clearly is how in his context of Eton, Oxford, and in particular the Oxford Union as a particular institution within Oxford, he is completely of his sort. And how his debating skills, his capacity to be witty, to not answer questions, to kind of be offensive to people when it, when it was useful to do so, was actually perfectly honed and then they become very useful. So. I found that really, really powerful, and I have a better sense of Boris Johnson as a prime minister. Uh, but I want to, in my 10 minutes, I just want to say, if, I want to try and um, rise to Simon's challenge about should we abolish Oxford? Now, um, I should say I have no personal uh, interest in Oxford. I was one of those comprehensive students who applied and didn't get in. I went to the University of York, so I have no, I have no. Uh, personal interest in Oxford. But I, as a sociologist, I want to try to think, see things structurally. And I'm always sceptical of the idea that, you know, fixing one particular thing somehow sorts out more systemic issues. And therefore, I wanted to try and focus on putting Oxford itself in a context. So the context will be looking at it with respect to other universities and other kinds of governing missions, if I can put it in those terms. And indeed, I was very struck. I just, um, having read Simon's book, I, I just Googled uh, Oxford 1980s to see what photographs came up, what the algorithms displayed. And we, of course, on the left-hand side, we see a very familiar image. Not, not much has changed in 40 years in terms of parties. And then, but on the other hand, real Oxford in the 1980s. 
Oxford, a very working class city, working class town. And there's this other side of Oxford, which we should not, not forget about. And I want to try and put Oxford in a bit of context in those terms and put it, put it, put it in a bigger social environment. Um, if I can. Yeah, so, that, so let me just say, and I want the, the provocation I want to make is that we can only understand the success of the Johnson cabal and the 1980s cohort that Simon discusses by understanding that it came into being when two particular projects had, fought, had failed, two governing projects which had dominated the post-war landscape had come to an end, thanks mainly to Margaret Thatcher. And here I partly echo what Simon was saying about the war generation. But I want to give it a bigger context too. I don't think it was just the war and the experience of war which was important. I think it's also, in a sense, the kind of the, 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 the coming to an end of two projects, which were, which were obviously strong Oxford, but they went beyond Oxford. And I'm particularly, and the first of these projects is what I call the liberal establishment, which I think is brilliantly dissected in this book by Noel Annan, Our Age. He was part of that liberal establishment himself. Um, he was vice chancellor of the University of London, uh, very active in the cultural scene. And he, he writes this elegy in his, old, in his old age about people like himself, white, male, privileged, private school graduates, not just Oxford, strong Cambridge and London, access to these group, who became so influential in the period after the Second World War. Here are a few examples. Kenneth Clark, director of the National Gallery, uh, also happy to chair, chairperson of Granada TV, very famous, of course, as an art critic and for the TV series Civilization. Keynes, of course, classically important in the core laws of power, Cambridge man rather than Oxford man. Roy Jenkins, Labour Home Secretary, very famous for liberalising um, many aspects of uh, public legislation in the 60s. And Adam's account of this group came to be very influential, not just as an Oxford group, but as a, as a, as a broader establishment project. But then he reports that this establishment fell by the wayside or were defeated by Thatcher. And he doesn't just blame Thatcher. He also talks about the way in which the group undercut itself by its own arrogance and inability to move with the times. Um, so that's one, one group which fell by the wayside. The other one is the social democratic establishment, as I call it, or the social democratic challenges. And of course, now it's easy to forget the significance of this group. Uh, very strong LSE tradition. Shelley Halsey, you know, working class, uh, and both Halsey and Titmus, who are two leading figures of the generation, taking working class backgrounds. Halsey went to LSE as an undergraduate and then ended up at Oxford at Nuffield College, very influential in influencing the Wilson government in the 60s. Albert Sloman, who's the, who's the person in the middle here, was the vice chancellor at Essex University. And they had a really important to recognise the role of these new universities in the 60s, Essex, Lancaster, Warwick, Sussex, um, and such like, who really set out a new vision for government and for the, the nation, organised around new universities, very strong social sciences. Um, Sloman was famous for giving the Reef Lectures in 1963, in which he laid out his vision for Essex University, 
These days, you cannot imagine a vice chancellor of the university being given the, the Reith lectures. He was. And in the 60s and 70s, this was a very powerful governing mission. Um, Philip Larkin, in one of his less well-known poems, was very sceptical. Larkin, of course, Thatcherite Tory, was very sceptical of what social science could achieve, uh, particularly when it comes to, came to fighting the Russians. Uh, but I, I think we need to recognise the power of this project at this point in time. But the significant thing, of course, in the context of Simon's arguments is that this was also defeated by Thatcher in a different kind of way. And, and, and as someone growing up in that period, uh, I remember that well. And my provocation or my question to Simon is really the group he's talking about, the Reese Mogs and the Johnsons, came into being at a particular moment in time when the two powerful projects previous had run out of steam or been defeated. And they seized the moment, as he describes really, really well. But could they, could an equivalent group who are now at University of Oxford do the same today? I'm not sure. And obviously I'll be interested in Jane's coming, the reflections upon this. But it's not obvious to me that we do live in a period where Oxford today is like it was in the 80s. Number of things, uh, you know, uh, Simon's referred to growing access to Oxbridge and the attempt to reduce the private skilled intake. Elite universities have become international universities, and that definitely includes Oxford. It's no longer the case. It's a particular cabal of British elites who go to them. And indeed, of course, we see this in many respects. It's Rishi Sunak, who entered the rich list recently, thanks to his wife. Um, who, yes, he went to Oxford, but of course, he also had the MBA at Stanford. And as we know, he at one point had a green card to live in the States. Um, also, I mean, again, Simon's account is very much geared towards the humanities and the role of a particular kind of uh, gentlemanly, old-fashioned learning. How significant is that today? I suspect not. And many of the trends, including in the elite universities, are away from education in that area. So my hope, in a way, is that 1980s cohort, which Johnson exemplifies, could not easily be, be reproduced in the future. Now, I may be being over-optimistic, but it's something perhaps I want to put, put into this discussion. Final point before I finish is just, I want to say a little bit about social mobility, and I want to return to something I did 10 years ago, the Great British Class Survey. This was a huge web survey um, of social class in Britain carried out by the BBC. We had a third of a million people do this web survey, asking all sorts of questions about their lives, uh, living standards, their interests. And because we had such a large sample size, we could pick out what the effects were of going to a particular university on people's future lives. Normally, in survey research, we only get you know, graduates or Russell group graduates. We can't distinguish particular universities. Well, we could in this survey. And I want to finish with one final slide just talk through an interesting nuance. Uh, well, the, first, the first point is that Simon is quite right, that according to our account, um, Oxford graduates are indeed the most privileged. And this is quite interesting. When we talked about our results to various colleagues 10 years ago, they said, well, Oxford and Cambridge are the same. Oxbridge is similar. Cambridge graduates should surely do as well as Oxford graduates in terms of their income levels and their social capital and so forth. But actually... In our analysis, Oxford was absolutely at the apex. 
But um, I'm going to show you a slide that has a few numbers in it. Um, which I think I, I want to finish on this slide. So this, what, what we did here is we broke down the sample in the Great British Class Survey according to three directions. On the left-hand side here, we compared those who came from families where the parent was a senior manager or a professional against those at the bottom who came from working class backgrounds, semi-routine and routine occupations. Then we distinguished those who've been to private school or comprehensive school. And finally, on the right-hand side, we distinguish those who went to Oxford, which was the most prestigious university, those who went to other Golden Triangle universities, that includes Cambridge, LSE, UCL, King's and Bristol and Imperial, other Russell Group universities, and none at all. And then we had a measure of being elite. Now, this measure of being elite is, is much more all-encompassing than Simon's discussion. It basically includes people who are well-paid, have lots of good connections socially, have a high degree of cultural capital. Now, this is, this, I should say this web survey is not a representative survey. So don't get fixated on the numbers. But we have good reason to assume it's not um, a million miles from the truth. And I just want to pull out two, two of these figures here. If we look at the top of this figure and look at those who, went, who, those who came from senior managerial professional backgrounds, went to private school, went to Oxford, they do indeed have the highest chance of being in the elite, 63% chance. So indeed, this is exactly what Simon is saying. There is a kind of royal road, a royal road, a golden route to the top, which goes through the Boris Johnson route. Uh, you know, or already the Reese Mogg route. Well off background, private schooling, Ethan, preferably, Oxford. Um, so that is indeed the case. But, but um, if we look at the bottom of this graph and look at those of those respondents, Great British class over here, taking working class backgrounds, went to a comprehensive school and also went to Oxford, and there are a few of them, I mean, yes, to be sure, not as many as there should be if it's proportional to the numbers of the population, but some did. You also see that um, a, a substantial number of those end up in the elite, and particularly when you compare their prospects with uh, their contemporaries who did not go to university, they have massively enhanced chance of being in the elite. So what follows from this is, yes, Oxford is indeed the site of elite reproduction, but it is also a place where a lot of social mobility happens too. And if we do abolish Oxford, we will end up also, you know, affecting its role as a vehicle where social mobility can happen. So I right, have for that time. I'm going to finish. Thank you. Right, thank you very much. Thank you. So we'll now move on to Jane. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much for inviting me here and giving me the chance to read this wonderful book. Um, my name is Jane Gingrich. I'm a professor of politics at the University of Oxford. And after reading this book, I sort of wondered if admitting that was something akin to sort of saying I'm a tobacco executive or an arms trader. 
um, involved in the production of something deeply socially bad. Um, but I don't think so. And I, although I've titled my talk in defense of Oxford, I'm not really here to defend it. Um, what I want to explain instead is a feeling of deep ambivalence that I had when reading this very excellent book. Ambivalent because on the one hand, it's so compellingly written and the line that's drawn from the central narrative to the book of in the book to the what we just saw yesterday with Sue Gray's report um, is so easy and so disturbing to draw once you've read um, this really compelling account. And aspects of what's described in this book still resonate with me, particularly because I'm a, I'm not from this country and I didn't grow up. Um, I came to Oxford as a as a um, faculty member, not as a student. And and seeing some of this, that seeing um, some of the descriptions of the 1980s, there's still aspects that resonate today. But on the other hand, I really like my students. I think they're sharp and curious and um, largely. Uh, people that are deeply committed to doing something good um, with their lives. And I think what I do every day has some value. And it's, and it's that ambivalence between the sort of description here and the reality um, that I think that those of us who are working and studying in Oxford now, that, that leave me in this question of sort of what is there to defend and where do we sort of um, see this book in the context of the contemporary moment? So I'm going to start, as Neil said, I'm a scholar of uh, education politics. So I'm going to start with a little bit of a, a question of like, what do education systems actually do? And education systems play a critical role in what we might call the kind of sorting and sieving of pupils, allocating them to different institutions, to different types of um, training, which in turn matches them to future opportunities. Education systems also give people skills and training. And they further teach us how the world works, how it should work, and help to reproduce society and culture. And Cooper's analysis is a, is a um, powerful indictment of Oxford at each step. The Oxford of the 1980s that he describes selects um, pupils unfairly with secure lines from elite private schools to even more privilege at Oxford. When there, it teaches the, these elites little that is useful in terms of knowledge while teaching them much um, about how to continue to secure their power and privilege. Um, and then it catapults these uh, same elites into even more elite positions in the world of work, providing them with valuable networks that they can tap into for life. The result, according to Simon, is an elite that is insular, unskilled, unserious, and often unchallenged, willing to gamble a country's future on an internal political conflict. And that account, as I said before, is compelling. And I don't want to dispute the core narrative of the book. Instead, what I want to do is push on each of the steps, the selection, the skills, the sorting, and ask, what does this critique imply for today? And what are the alternatives um, that uh, both the book offers and that we might think about more broadly? Okay. So let's start with who gets into Oxford. The story that Simon tells about the 1980s Oxford is one in which selection into the university is not just unequal, is unequal, sorry, not just in the sense that it's, it does not represent um, the broader society, but that the rules of selection seem to operate differently for different types of uh, pupils. For some of the elites that he studies, particularly the Etonians and those with connections, access to Oxford is almost a given, not something that needs to be earned. And in many ways, I really think the world has changed. Um, so the figure on the right shows the share of state school pupils, 
And that number, as Simon said in his talk, has risen from about 50% um, in the 1980s to 70% today. But what this figure does not communicate is that the character of admissions has really changed. It is um, hyper-competitive now, not just because of the increased competition across the United Kingdom to enter, but also globally. Now, does this competition make it fair? I would hesitate to use that word. I think it's made it harder, uh, but there are obviously clear advantages that uh, privileged pupils have. But I think in some ways, these advantages may be less at Oxford than they are at other elite institutions globally. You can't buy your way into Oxford. Expensive extracurriculars don't count that much in admissions. And the interviews, um, which used to select on ease and a kind of cultural fluency, have, I think have become much more sensitive to difference. So in the United States, which this bottom picture um, draws from a New York Times article, drawing on the work by Raj Chetty and his collaborators, um, they find that at elite universities like New York University, but also the Ivies and Stanford, the representation of the top 1% of the income distribution is larger than the entire bottom 60% of pupils. Um, Simon, though, doesn't um, compare um, uh, Oxford so much to the U.S. system. Instead, his alternatives in the book are Canada or Germany or the Netherlands, where the systems are much less co um, competitive in many regards and elites are less con concentrated. And while I buy fundamentally the claim that these systems are more egalitarian and fair in many regards, I'm not sure they're as easy to model as he suggests. So I'm Canadian, and when I went to school, it was indeed much more relaxed and much less elite um, than it is uh, here. But uh, many of my Canadian friends now are almost as anxious as my American friends about their children and their future. And their kids are being rushed to violin lessons and chess camps and internships in the same ways. And equally, the Dutch and German systems, while providing much clearer and less elite paths to universities, have very selective secondary systems. So this bottom right picture shows the Dutch system, where at the age of 12, children either join a vocational stream, a better vocational stream, or an academic stream. And in the end, the outcomes are fairer and social mobility is higher, but that is in large part because the labor market is fairer. And unions, regulations, and others mean that wages are more compressed the education system still has a strong socioeconomic gradient. So where labor markets are unequal and the prize, the prize of selective um, education grows, and it can be very hard to unseat. But that raises the question of what if we just ended it? And that's where Simon sort of ends. And he has the idea of sort of an adult education or graduate only. You could also think of just allocating positions um, to U UK universities by um, lottery, um, which some some systems do in terms of nursing school or, or medical education. And on the one thing, hand, this might make things better. And I think the optimistic scenario that Simon points to in his book is that it would diversify who has access to these resources. And I think there's really a lot to, to take in that. But on the other hand, it might just push status and elite reproduction to other places, back to the Eatons and Winchesters and private schools that are even less accessible to everyone else and making things worse, as Mike showed, Oxford does remain for many an engine of social mobility. Okay, well, what about what they learn when they come here? So Simon describes a sleepy and complacent institution in the 1980s in which students are rewarded or at a minimum not punished for essays that are short on insight or F and effort, but high on rhetorical flourish. And this is particularly bad in his account for classicists like Johnson. 
As Simon argues in the book, Oxford has changed. It has become more serious. But the claim that, um, but, so, but where I want to sort of push on the claim is that something about the mix of tutorials and essay writing breeds a particular skill set that's unsuited for um, uh, politics or for potentially more serious endeavors. So I think that first, I don't think, uh, and this is something I really strongly believe that it's necessarily bad for young students to start out asking big questions. When I was in graduate school, one of the senior professors in the department used to advise us to, quote, eat our desserts first. And what he meant by this is start with the big fun questions and then get serious. So can 18-year-olds really add that much to new centuries-old debates about the origins of political order, the nature of cooperation, the value of liberty? Sometimes they can, but often they can't. Um, but they have to start somewhere. And I think that our curriculum takes them there. And through the tutorial system, it does push them to think critically, to engage, and to really consider some of the sort of fundamental questions that shape um, our society. And I think um, it does so in part, and it, would be, it does so in part because of the discussion. And I, there's some real value to the sort of method of back and forth that isn't just rhetorical, but is about critical thinking. And some of these students end up being excellent policymakers. And I think that, that our method um, pushes them that, in that regards. It's not necessarily inimical to it. So that said, I think, again, the discussion about student politics in the book is, is, is hard to sort of square again with this. Um, we can see sort of the end point of this. And I think it's really compellingly painted. But at the same time, I think student politics is often cutthroat. Um, even in egalitarian settings, I have a picture here of the German Youth Social Democrats. And in the 1970s and 80s, there's cutthroat politics um, amongst these youth organizations. And that led to the generation of a political elite that cut their teeth on um, these, these systems. But that said, I don't think this gets Oxford off the hook. Do we do enough? Um, and I've had discussions with students often at an advanced stage um, where um, they're discussing things like the U.S. welfare state, and they point to slavery in the United States as if it were an entirely American institution. And a part of me thinks how if our third year's politics students don't see the, the line that runs straight um, through the UK to systems of, of slavery or colonialism and so on, then it's a failure on our part. And I don't mean this so much as a political point. I think people can have different views about um, the past of British history, but I think the connections there and the connections that potentially make us uncomfortable, that hold a mirror up to ourselves and the present are sometimes lacking in our curriculum or maybe even often lacking in our curriculum. And that raises a bigger question. And I think one that really comes out of Simon's book and also out of his talk, which is, can an institution that's built on inequalities ever really question them? Um, and this was a debate that came up. Again, people will have different views on this in the roads must fall moment in which um, these questions about sort of how can we reform from within and what would that really mean uh, were raised. So the third point is, okay, the sorting machine, the third part of the argument, where do they go? It is very clear that Oxford is overrepresented in politics. I will not argue that point. Um, elites are overrepresented in politics in most countries, but the British situation is um, particularly so. On that, on the, however, in, in the last decades, there's sort of two stories about British politics that I think are important to highlight. And the first is shown by the slides, um, the images on this slide, which come from some collaborative work that I've done uh, with Ben Ansel that builds on data from Jennifer Hudson and Rosie Campbell. 
And um, what we can see here is the dark lines um, show the number of MPs in different groups and the dashed lines show the population. And so when we look at the British political elite as represented by members of parliament, not necessarily the cabinet, what we can see is that in many ways it has actually become more representative over time. Certainly that's the case in terms of gender, um, also ethnicity. The British public has, has um, become more like the British political elite as it has gained more education. Um, but where we see some shifts that sort of push in the other direction are down here. The British political elite has, has increasingly come from um, managerial type professions. And as um, Despina Alexiadou and Tom O'Grady argue in their various work, it's not just about professional managerial backgrounds, but it's something that Simon really points to in his book, which is the professional architecture of politics. People come from within political parties and then become MPs. And correspondingly, the number of uh, manual workers or working class members of parliament has dramatically dropped. And so if we're thinking about sort of the political elite um, and what it represents, I think what we see is a lack of diversity in recruitment networks. And that requires a rethinking of the economic and political model in the UK. Can the overly centralized sort of London focused political system generate a political elite that truly represents this country? Can it recruit the diverse political talent? And this is not to take Oxford off the hook, but it's to say that where Oxford it lies in this system is um, in the midst of a, of a model of political recruitment and reproduction that is heavily centralized in many, many ways. And so this leads to the final and um, my final point, which is Simon argues in the book, essentially, no Oxford, no Brexit. And from a causal perspective, I'm actually willing to believe this. I think Brexit has lots of causes, but it may have been a necessary condition um, that all of these, these central players, or at least many of them, um, all knew each other, were part of the same network, and that that network was really formed at Oxford in this particular moment in time. But on the other hand, when we think about what Brexit is doing to higher education, and in particularly to Oxford, I think pushing back, um, there's a real danger that sort of pushing back against the institution in a way that points the finger could do as much harm as it does good. Our current moment, um, not just in this country, but across Europe, the United States and elsewhere, uh, populist movements have um, emerged as uh, strong critics of higher education and the university system, in some countries undercutting funding for them, in others um, pushing back against them. And we see elements of this also in the UK. And I think the danger as we go forward is that Oxford moves back to the 1980s story that Simon told, less global, um, more elitist, and less open. And that's something um, to uh, defend against. Thank you. Jane, that was wonderful. Thank you very much. So if we'd ask Simon and Mike to um, put their cameras back on. Um, and we've got loads of good questions. And I know, Simon, you've been putting your go, your, that you might answer some of them live, but I, I'll just sort of get a few. And then um, I'm going to try and make sure that we have ones which I think I'd like Mike and Jane to sort of come in on a couple of them. And the most academic one comes from Donna Carmichael, who's a PhD student here in sociology. And she says, Bourdieu proposed the, no Bourdieu proposed the notion of cultural capital to explain socio-political privilege and upward mobility. Um, how much of this political privilege results from what Bourdieu termed economic capital? So essentially the economic capital leads to them, the cabal attending Oxford 
um, and that leads on to sort of political privilege. So I'll ask that. And then I think the other question, which I'm, you know, which I think has come up a couple of times, which is great, is, you know, essentially, how do you explain Johnson having two articles before the Brexit referendum, one pro-Brexit and one sort of anti-Brexit? Is that a sort of typical Oxford sort of debating exercise? And that question comes from Mehdi Ascarier, and I've merged it with one from Kamil Jonsky. So, Simon, if we could go to you first. Uh, thanks, Neil. So these are excellent questions, which I was trying to answer typing, but I uh, was unable to because of technical incompetence. Cultural or economic capital, I think part of the power of this class that I'm describing is they have both. You know, these are from some of the richest families in the UK, and then also Eton and Oxford, and that is a kind of uh, really impressive amount of heft will take you to power. Nobody has better connections, say, than the 21-year-old David Cameron, who, when he applies to Conservative Research Department, they get a phone call from Buckingham Palace saying you should take this young man. The two articles is an excellent example of Johnson's kind of Oxford Union mindset. In the Oxford Union, uh, you might be planning to debate in favour of capital punishment at that night's debate. When on the afternoon, somebody says to you, actually, you have to argue against capital punishment because somebody has dropped out on the other side. So it's completely flexible. And the Nat is being able to argue whatever case you've been given. And uh, Johnson could, I think, have made a wonderful case and a winning case for Remain had he decided that that was in his personal interest. I just want to very briefly uh, recognize a couple of things Mike and Jane had said. I mean, I, I agree with almost everything both of you say, and we're sort of talking about Jane, we're talking about different universities. The Oxford of the 80s is not the Oxford of the 2020s. There are, you know, vague similarities, but yes, it is a, a much better uh, university now. And um, absolutely, people should ask the big fun questions like what are the origins of the political order? They should just do a bit of work and take it seriously, which uh, not everybody did. Uh, on Mike's points, just very briefly, is this the last gasp of the Ox Eton and Oxford elite? I asked myself that question. I mean, are we just unlucky that, um, you know, there was the financial crisis and people were unhappy and then Cameron and Johnson got in and it, it's sort of bad luck and this is not going to happen again? It might be. It might be that we look back, others look back in 50 years and say, well, that was the end. He was the last Alec Douglas human figure in British politics. But maybe not because this class is very tenacious, have these incredible amounts of cultural and economic capital and if they have to get MBAs, if they have to do STEM degrees, they will. The point of Eton isn't to produce people who do classics. The point of e at Oxford, the point of Eton is to produce the ruling class. And they damn well intend to do so in every generation. Mike, would you like to come in on capitals? Sure. Um, well, thank you, Donna. Uh, thank you for introducing Pierre Bourdieu. Of course, it's an inspiring figure for me. Um, I mean, my interpretation, yes, uh, Simon's quite right. Obviously, uh, that the Boris Johnson has both cultural and economic capital, but obviously we've heard many times that uh, Boris Johnson says he's not earning enough and he's underpaid as prime minister and, and then he's looking at Rishi Sunak thinking, well, I don't have, a, I have as much money as he does. And there is a sense in which I think um, you might see Johnson as uh, relying upon certain kinds of cultural capital and actually being a bit economically un, you know, underperforming compared to some people. Just my own, my, own, my own interpretation is that, generally speaking, 
cultural capital is losing power compared to economic capital. You know, the rise of wealth, serious wealth in the world, and we obviously see this with Russian oligarchs, uh, as well as with people like Rishi Sunak, they are becoming more influential. And so unless you can cash your resources into economic capital, you're going to lose ground. And I think we're seeing that even, in, in, even with Boris Johnson. Jane, would you like to come in on that? Or? No, okay. So, I mean, a few more questions about sort of, you know, first about, you know, first of all, you know, what happens next? So, I mean, so, you know, I think talks about it being this potential last gasp. Um, Guy asked us, how does Simon see this culture evolving in the future? Or, you know, how have you seen it evolve so far since? Um, then Caitlin Bradley asked this great question of, you know, what do you think the future of Britain looks like politically if the next PM did not go to an elitist university like Oxford, which I think is sort of interesting. And then um, I think, Jane, I'd quite like you to take on the point which Rollo Maschietta has asked about how would you defend the uh, charge that Oxford's PPE course has produced an out-of-touch, ineffectual political class, please. And there's still plenty of space for new questions and they're coming in now. So Simon, if I could go to you first of all. Um, yeah, how do we see this evolving? I know that these people have no intention of going away. And I also think that there's a strong reflex in the British population that says it is right that an Etonian should rule, that these people are born to rule, that there is, of course, resentment against them, but there's also a, a continuing deference. And, you know, you see it, who's going to succeed Johnson? I don't know. It might be Liz Truss. It might be Rishi Sunak. It might be Jeremy Hunt. It might be Keir Starmer. They all went to Oxford. So I don't see a, an overturning of British systems. I also think that the current period of cost of living crisis, possible recession, et cetera, is not going to be kind to the people lower down. We're not entering an era of social democracy. The government has zero interest in bringing that on. We're not going back, as it were, to 1948. So uh, I am very sceptical that uh, the next lot out of the pipeline are going to be very different. Mike? I was actually looking at the, the Q&A myself. Can you just write me my, <laughs> my <laughs> which particular question do you, want, do you want me to answer? Um, sorry, it was the, um, I mean, sorry, I guess just, you know, what happens if we have a non-elite um, oh, university? Yeah, uh, look, I mean, um, I'm not. I'm not sure, really. I think um, we, we. I think. I think it's quite important to think about the thought experiment of what happened to we abolish Oxford. And I think. I think Simon is quite right to pose that uh, as a kind of uh, null hypothesis, if you like. What would happen if you get rid of Oxford? Um, I don't. And I was trying to make my comments were that I don't think it's as straightforward as that. I think we we tend towards a technical fix approach, which is you know do one thing and then everything else will improve. I think our problems in Britain are more systemic. And um, I mean, he raised the issue about having uh, other universities taking its place. And I think that would, that would be my, my take on it too. Jane, I mean, you sort of hinted at that in your presentation. What's your take? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that there's ways in which um, we should think seriously about um, diversifying the sources of political power and that, I mean, for me, this, the fix might not be getting rid of Oxford. It would be thinking about models of decentralization and local elite cultivation outside of the current sort of hyper-centralized model right now and allowing sort of talent generation in, in different places that had um, more capacity to sort of enter politics. But I think that that's, a, that's not something that is necessarily 
um, opposed to the discussion here. It's just an alternative pathway of thinking about sort of how we can recruit more diverse networks into politics. Um, the question of sort of does is PPE to blame? So we've we've had the classicists, but we also have um, PPE on the table in in the question. Um, and I think yeah, so. I am sort of of two minds. I've thought obviously thought about this a lot. And on the one hand, sometimes you know I think. Um, to think that PPE is to blame is to sort of give us too much credit you know, on this whole this whole thing. I mean, we're at some point a kind of a cog in a bigger wheel, as Mike pointed to, in terms of the the broad, broader systemic things. But on the other hand, I think that even as a kind of a cog, there is a question of sort of could we do better in terms of what we teach? And I think that that the answer is yes. We should always be reflecting on that. There's been a, a very wide ranging discussion in economics in the last years about how to teach economics. And Wendy Carlin and others have, have put a lot of thought into sort of new curricula and economics. Um, in politics, I think we are having this discussion. We can have it more um, in terms of whether what we're actually doing is sort of preparing people or giving them the kind of critical skills to reflect on the society that we're in. And I, and I think that the only way um, for our institution to remain relevant going forward in a way that's not the relevance that Simon's attributing to it is to continue to be sort of self-critical about what we do and what we teach. So, I mean, this great. so I have another question, right, which is that which keeps coming up for me, which is so I have a Norwegian friend and he says the problem with the with the UK is not Oxford. The problem is everyone else, because it's the, the problem is that we all sort of seem to think of it as being this sort of like paragon of virtue and and sort of, you know, feel reassured every time we we have a politician who's been to you know Balliol or wherever. So that's I mean, so my first question is, you know, how much you how much do you recognize that, Simon? Is this is this, um, you know, am I, you know, is the problem not Oxford, the problem, the rest of us? And then the second point, which I'd like to take on is Elke Nola in the Q&A has asked this question about gender, because this has been a very, very male set of people we've talked about. So I wonder how that fits into, into your sort of discussion, Simon. Do you want me to quickly do both of those questions? Yeah, you, yeah go on, if you can. One, one reason I wrote the book in answer to that is it everybody else and not Oxford is to demystify Oxford and Oxford people. And I think a lot of people have this impression, a lot of Oxford alumni, of course, want to give the impression it's this incredible place where you become this well-honed, complete genius who is equipped for any job. And people like Johnson and Cameron and Gove have hugely benefited. I have benefited in my much smaller career from that. And it's completely unfair and it's all based on a fairly random decision made when you were 17 years old. So no, um, I, I mean, I, I agree. Um, People should have much less awe, but they do. And they also have awe for Eason. And both of that has led us to this, this pretty past. As for gender, I mean, this is a group of people, the, the people in my book are almost all men. And that's because British power in our times has been almost all men. And the Oxford Union and the Tory party and Oxford and Eason, all these institutions hugely encourage that. They're all places where as a white man from a certain class, you're encouraged to feel at home. In the Oxford Union, of course, if a woman spoke, uh, she would be judged often on her appearance. Her voice would not carry as well in the large chamber. She wouldn't be taken as seriously, et cetera. And so, yeah, the whole system is massively biased in favor of, of men. Boris Johnson, when he left Oxford, wrote this essay reflecting on student politics, a collection of essays published by his sister in a book. And in this essay, he talks about girls as kind of helpers of 
the inevitably male politician, student politician. So he talks about porky girls from the women's colleges who get, you know, human warmth from being part of the male student politician's machine. I think it was hard for him to conceive of powerful women politicians. And in the center of the Tory party and Labour party, not always, but usually that, that remains the case. So, yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a very gendered story. So can I just press on that? So where does Thatcher come in? Is Thatcher... Yeah, Thatcher's an interesting story. So when she comes to Oxford at the end of the war, uh, women are not allowed to become full members of the Oxford Union. It's a subject that's periodically debated. And when Ted Heath, for example, was president of the Oxford Union, he also said women should not be allowed in. They only get in as full members in the 60s. So Thatcher, of course, hugely ambitious and political, has to make a political career elsewhere. She goes into the Oxford Union University Conservative Association, where almost everybody is is a male toff, except her. And she, of course, through this force of will and intelligence and aggression that we all got to know much later, she forces her way into the presidency. She's not taken really seriously by the men, but they all recognize she works hard. She organizes more than anyone else. She grows the Oxford Union Conservative Association. It's an enormous society. They gain hundreds of members in her time there. So she does make an impact, but she's always somewhat scoffed at. And so Thatcher is always in the story of kind of women in British politics. She's the great exception. And I don't think she particularly... Um, proves a rule, she's a force of nature. Theresa May gets seen in this kind of accidental scenario in 2016 where all the men knock each other out. Uh, and uh, Johnson then spends the whole May era gathering his forces for the almost inevitable return. Mike, Jane, do I think, Mike? Yeah, quickly on the gender point, just to very much, I agree with Simon. Um, in fact, I'm currently doing some, a, a comparative project mapping out different European elites. And we've got various measures of wealth, economic power, political power. And if you, if, you, if you choose a discriminating measure, it really is credibly male and it hasn't changed much at all. I mean, Jane had some very interesting figures about the proportion of female MPs, I think it was. So it's certainly because many MPs are foot, shot, foot soldiers, aren't they? And they have very little power. Um, I mean, what, what Simon's talking about is in a circle close to the prime minister, which, yes, and there can be some honorary women in that too, as we see, as we see in, the, in the present cabinet. But I'm a, I'm a very pessimistic view about actually how, how closed this male world is. And the rise of the super wealthy, that's a predominantly male world. How many, how many female Russian oligarchs have we come across in recent, recent weeks? Very few. Um, so I think it's a very pessimistic scenario. Jane, would you like to come in? Yeah, I agree. And I think that there was a comment in, in the chat um, or a question asked um, about sort of the adversarial nature of politics and that that effect on gender. I mean, we know a lot about um, all sorts of things that so if we look at sort of gender as a as a factor that sort of selects people differentially into different programs. So in in PPE, for instance, we still it's still many more men than women, although that's not the case at standalone politics um, programs at other universities. Um, and then the sort of academic culture around that, as Simon points out in the book, the sort of timed exams, that that can have gendered effects. And so there's all of these places that it comes in. And then in terms of what's happening at the Oxford Union, I mean, the, the book and the comments now were very compelling that this is a v- this very gendered space and things have changed. But, but, it's, but all of these things are kind of pushing in a direction that is, um, I think, 
can explain some of these gaps. Now, I think what we've been doing over the last years is trying to push back against that. And so we have more women in PPE, for instance. I think um, the university as a whole is more gen- much more gender balanced. It's a huge, of course, one of the huge stories of the last 30 years is the mass upgrading of um, female qualifications in the labor force. And this is this is very much ra- radically changed how we work, but it's still, um, there's huge gaps across almost all countries, especially if they don't use um, any kind of gender quota on in parliament in terms of actual representation of women. So when we're thinking about sort of the way in which Oxford fits into that, again, it's, it is a cog in a larger process of um, sort of gendered reproduction of power, I think. Um, but it's an important one. And I think one that the book very rightly pushes us to think seriously about. Thank you. Um, look, we don't have too long left. And we've got loads of questions. So, Simon, I'm going to ask you the, the obvious one, right, which has come from Adrian Lee, um, is the, about the current issues of Partygate and the sort of Sue Gray report. Is, that, is Partygate just a reenactment of what happens at Oxford? And I'll ask um, sort of Mike and Jane the same question in a moment. But Simon, what do you think? I talk a little in the book about the Bullingdon Club, which is something that almost everyone now knows about. Oxford. It's this all-male dining club, and they're very raucous and rule-breaking above all. And so you're invited in, typically it's only toffs. They only have about 12 or 15 members at a time. And yet many of the people we know in British politics, Johnson, Cameron, but also George Osborne, were all members of this very small club. What does the Bullingdon do? They hold these dinners, they break restaurant windows, they uh, de-bag in their language, take the trousers off passers-by, um, they uh, break up the rooms, destroy the rooms of new members, and any problems, they, they give you 50 quid. You know, you're the restaurant manager and you come to complain, they stick 50 quid in your breast pockets and you have to go away. So that's adding insult to injury. And the, what is the Bullingdon Club really saying? What does all this mean? It means the rules don't apply to us. That is the message they are sending to the world because we are Eton, we are Oxford, we are going to make the rules. And at Eton, you're told you are going to make the rules. And so Eton is not this kind of cadaver discipline kind of place with lots of canings that many public schools and private schools still were in the 80s. A lot of the public and private schools were educating people to groom the lower slopes of the establishment to be, as it were, the the aid. Eton grooms you to be the top man. And so you can break the rules. So I think Partygate, it seems very strange to most British people because they have been educated that you have to obey the rules, otherwise you'll be in trouble. And you have you are part of this whole nation and you should show solidarity. Johnson has never been taught that. He has been taught you are going to make the rules. And these other people are the people you are going to rule over. They are not part of your community. So, I mean, Partygate is almost too neat an illustration of my book. And um, I sometimes feel that Johnson is my uh, chief publicity agent. Wonderful. Mike, Jane, we don't have long left, so any, you know, either answer that question or final reflections would be great as well. well just, no, they're very interesting. I mean, I, I do think it's an interesting shift between Johnson and, and older generations of, of Etonians and Ox, Oxbridge elites, because, of course, for that older culture, I mean, it's the group I talked about as being part of the liberal establishment, you know, it was very important to have to have, to, to, to follow follow uh, etiquette, to have have respect, and I, they they would have resigned in the same situation, wouldn't they? I mean, all those previous prime ministers surely would have resigned well before Johnson passed. There's something about him in that generation, which was you sort of abandoned that old gentlemanly culture of doing the right thing, 
gentleman's word is his honour. You couldn't imagine Boris Johnson ever saying it. Well, you might say yes, but he wouldn't, wouldn't live by that. Um, so I think there is an interesting shift. There's a certain loss in, in Johnson's generation of that old gentlemanly culture, but they're keeping the trappings of power and privilege and, and selfishness um, at the same time. Just very briefly, Sue, to confirm that, I think Macmillan would have thought, I belong to the British nation. And he might not have thought that before World War I, but for the rest of his life, he and Attlee and Eden felt that. And so they would have been horrified by the idea that they could step outside that community and do things that other people weren't allowed to do. Okay. Jane, any final reflections? Yeah, just final thoughts that, um, you know, we've, we have about 30% of the American elite that is acting as though a, a fair democratic election uh, wasn't and and it was stolen and not pushing back against outrageous conspiracy theories or claims. And I think what we've seen from that is that when elites don't patrol the norms and the boundaries, that um, where it's bad news. And I, and that's perhaps uh, this is a much more minor version of that. But I think I think the key thing is that that the sort of abrogation of norms of public life have happened has have been happening in many countries over over the last years, whether it's linked to the sort of deep seated class reproduction in Britain or there's something sort of broader happening here. It's probably a mix of both. But I think as as an institution, one of our key things is to sort of patrol norms and to be certain that for the generation that currently exists, that they they see a song, strong social responsibility going forward. That's wonderful. Um, thank you so much, everyone. It's been a pleasure to chair tonight's event. Thank you so much to, well, Mike and Jane in particular um, for responding. Simon, thank you so much for writing such a fantastic um, book. Um, thank you very much to the sign language interpreters, to the Inequalities Institute staff who helped set this up. If you'd like to hear more about the LSE's International Inequalities Institute, follow the links in the chat function. Um, to hear more about our upcoming events. Our next one is titled Policy and Social Change, 6.30 p.m. next Tuesday, the 31st of May. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks again for such a wonderful debate. Um, and I look forward to seeing you at the next event. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.